The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Development, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. In August 2022, when central bankers from around the world gathered for their annual meeting in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, a consensus emerged that the current methods for managing through business cycles are woefully insufficient for managing today's current economic and societal crisis, says Olaf Grott, one of the co-authors of a new book, The Great Remobilization. We have the energy crisis, we have the food crisis, continues Grott. We have the supply chain crisis and we have the war in Ukraine, all of which have had profound implications for the economic performance of the world. The book goes on to say the limited abilities of bankers and governments to address large-scale issues demand a new way of addressing challenges. Grot says the stakes have never been higher. Therefore, incremental changes won't work. We need step change redesigns of our global frameworks. I invited Olaf Grot, one of the co-authors of the Great Remobilization, to join me for a conversation that matters about a framework that will assist leaders to address the tectonic shifts that are underway. Olaf, welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you, Stuart, and with your audience. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start by actually asking you to uh, define what you mean by uh, remobilization. Uh, are we talking about something that is sort of like the shift from the industrial age to the digital age or the manufacturing age that we've been going through, and now we're shifting into uh, a societal age. Something of that nature, but it's really a double shift, right? So th I think through the pandemic, as you see from some of our writing in that book, um, we have clearly seen that our current system of national as well as international governance grappling with the world's biggest problems is bankrupt. Um, we have seen uh, sagging numbers of trust for all sectors in society, whether it's media, nonprofit, government or business. Uh, business, incidentally, uh, still looking the cleanest if you go by the Edelman index, right? But it's not a glorious positioning when you look at that graphic. So we have seen um, uh, a really a slump of trust in people uh, in their governments and in their institutions and society because the virus had made, has made very clear that we overpressurized a global system of systems, we're not able to collaborate effectively. Too many people died. Too many livelihoods uh, were uh, were ruined. Right, and so uh, so that's that's number one. We need to restart and remobilize the economy. And the second one, the second level here is that we need to do so in a much smarter way than we had previously. Right, globalization 1.0, as we call it, which is sort of the you know post-World War II globalization that we've been driving forward um, was really based on a very stovepiped approach to uh, global uh, trade and goods and services and, 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 and movement of people. Uh, but now we've seen that all of this is interlocking. And now that it is interlocking, we can't foresee the second order effect. So we need smarter tools. So we need to remobilize the economy globally with smarter tools for better um, understanding of these systems and for governance of these systems to recreate trust in people that we can get the job done fairly and equitably. So when we came out of, I, I sense that we're coming out of, uh, you know, what had been the Milton Friedman school of thought, which was, you know, it's all about profit, it's all about quarterly returns. 
But, and so mixed into that to support the idea of, well, let's move manufacturing offshore. We're going to create a global community and then everybody's going to benefit. Well, we're seeing that when we have mixed systems, we've got you know, capital markets on one side, but we have government controlled uh, regimes on another that are now suddenly uh, at odds with one another or there's, a, there's an incredible amount of tension. Um, how do we, using uh, the... The, I, I'm going to call it Flip It, which is the acronym that you've created for the system that, that you are, are proposing. How do we start to address what some of those challenges and tensions are uh, between us, but also to come to solutions that everybody can benefit from? Yeah, look, we drove this global economy through decades believing, uh, many of us anyway, maybe not all of us, that government should stay out of business as much as possible uh, and leave it free reign, right? And, and, and there were some good reasons for doing that. Bad regulation is clearly not conducive to economic growth. But there needs to be somebody who's got the bird's eye view. And if corporations themselves, being very busy with their value chains and their competitive environment, uh, don't have the bird's eye view, then who does but government, right? So there has to be somebody, whether it's government or some other uh, institution of governance, uh, and we, we have some suggestions on the back end, in the back end of the book, um, you know, we can discuss that. But if you don't have situational awareness of what's happening in the economy nationally, internationally, you cannot possibly mitigate global crises like that cascade of crises we've been experiencing, right? So to get to, to the other part of your question, though, um, the flip it model we developed, it's, it's based on scenario planning, right, on a technique of strategic foresight that um, you know, Shell and, and, and GBN, and Peter Schwartz and others had pioneered uh, over the last few decades. Uh, we invented Flipit uh, or built Flipit as a rapid cycle method to understand the unfolding chaos, sort through it, see an emerging operating logic, right? For your business, if you're a business leader or for your economy, uh, if you're a local or national uh, uh, you know, policymaker, to understand what's happening, to see a new pattern bubble up, and then to say, okay, uh, as that is emerging, and that means I have a little bit of lead time, right, to prepare for that, um, then what am I gonna do about it, right? And on the back end of that model, the IMT is essentially understanding impact of what is bubbling up and triaging your current activities to, to a, a more effective set of actions or investments, or if you're a business leader, products, right? So right. that's what we try to do with the Flip It model, right? It stands for forces, emerging logic, um, the phenomena and, log and, 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 and patterns that bubble up, and then the impact assessment and the strategic forward direction of what do we do about this? The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Developments, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. Let's take a look at, uh, sort of break that down. You talk about the, the major forces or force that's uh, in play. How do you characterize what that uh, force is right at the moment that we need to be paying attention to? Yeah, look, we, we did uh, take a cut at this uh, for our readers in the book, right? We say there are, there are essentially five, six uh, different tectonic forces that are uh, mightier than most other forces. And, uh, you know, experts can disagree on what they are, but we have uh, given you a good rationale in the book as to why we think those are the ones. And those are, um, 
you know, obviously COVID and CRISPR, uh, which is which is both the virus as well as the chief tool of understanding the virus, because that was the last four years, and we and, and we need to take account of that. Uh, tremendous efforts have been made uh, in understanding genetic code with the help of AI and data science, and that's the second C. We call it the you know we call it the six C's. Um, the second C is cognitive technologies like AI, data science, brain-computer interfaces, no longer science fiction, coming now, right? Um, and of course, various uh, IoT uh, technologies. Uh, quantum computing is over the horizon, not yet here, but coming. Um, and, uh, and, and so all of that, of course, then creates a lot of change and a lot of vulnerability. That takes us to, uh, to cybersecurity. Um, uh, and uh, there's revolutions happening there. There's revolutions happening in crypto, and that stands for a trust and governance revolution. So we unpack that in the book. Uh, and then, of course, there is climate change, which is the existential threat um, to all of us, as we've seen this summer very clearly. Um, and then finally, China, because nothing will work without some level of both competition and cooperation with China. Right? We have to engage on some level. So what is that level? So those are the six sea tectonic forces we see. There's, of course, many others. Um, and it's all about uh, prioritizing the right ones for your particular domain and then seeing that new operating logic unfold uh, before your eyes, as it were, uh, now and into the future. Uh, that that arises when you collide these forces. So, in essence, you're saying be aware of these forces. Think about them. Think about how they could uh, immediately or even into the uh, the future impact you and start to anticipate uh, possible courses of action. That's right, and we do a little bit of that work for you, right? Uh, otherwise, it'd be it'd be a textbook, and that's not what we're what we're crafting. This is a, a, a mass market book for leaders, and so we have said, look, the, this, the 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 clashing of these six forces results in a new operating logic that, frankly, goes for almost every sector in society, uh, and that is what we have dubbed the cognitive economy. And the cognitive economy uh, essentially means that we're now injecting cybernetics functions in, in every area of life, right? Uh, and, and it starts with, you know, chat GPT and, and it, it will continue with brain computer interfaces that are now starting to find discrete applications. And so what that means is that as we're injecting these smart technologies, we understand matters a lot better. We can command and control them a lot better and ideally use that uh, ability to our benefit. Now, that's a, that's a big if, we gotta shape it, right? So this cognitive economy will eventually lead to power shifts in our societies because the people that run these technologies, that fund them, that invent them, they have particular power in society and, and certainly in the economy. And we've this is not actually that new, right? We've seen this over the past two plus decades with the rise of the big hyperscaler platforms and people who are in that digital part of the economy do financially and politically a lot better than others. And, uh, and, and so that too, we need to shape, right? But that's the new operating logic of the cognitive economy spanning across everything, agriculture, education, certainly government as well, um, and uh, various other sectors in, 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 in industrial applications, of course, as well. So honestly, we have trouble seeing how, 
how, uh, you know, where there are the sectors that are not impacted by this, right? Now, right. as you do your own analysis, you've got to take it deeper for your own particular domains, obviously, but that's the one that, that weaves its way through everything. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Development, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. So the L, as we've referred to, uh, refers to logic. Uh, and it's about, okay, well, how do you make sense of this in uh, relationship to the situation that you're in uh, financially, geographically, geopolitically? Um, what's the secret of being able to take all of these external, you know, six C's inputs and make sense of them in one's own environment? Yeah, look, what, what you're looking for is new patterns, right? New patterns arising because when you when you really look closely, um, uh, you know, as we do at, at Cambrian Futures and at Berkeley, if you look closely at, um, you know, different groupings, communities, industries, domains, and society, you actually can discern patterns, right? And economists and business scholars have done this and, and, and policy, uh, um, you know, experts have done this for a long time where you look at, stakeholder relationships you look at you know uh relationships between different actors and industries right um famous uh, fairly well used paradigms like the michael porter forces and things like that that are now a bit aging but you can apply those make those more dynamic to see these new patterns so specifically if you're a business leader i would tell you look at your value chain right which is which is a fairly simple tool um you know easy to understand been around for a while as you play the operating logic, this new cognitive economy with all of its new AI and data in it, at every link in that value chain, who is looking up and who is looking down, meaning who is well prepared for this and who is not. And then you can make a decision on, on how to triage in that value chain, where to position yourself, how to be one of the ones that's up rather than down, right? And you can do the same with industry frameworks or if you're a policymaker, you can look at a stakeholder uh, ecosystem. And, and these are maps that in many smart governments such as yours, they already exist. There are people that know how to do that, right? How to look at stakeholders and their relationships in between. Because after all, you know, economies and societies are all about relationships. How do these relationships change such that power increases or decreases? Right. So the P in the flip it is phenomenon. How does one, having gone through, looking at the forces, trying to make sense of it, then uh, start to be able to understand what phenomena is at play? Yeah. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, you know, crypto, for instance, right? So everybody talks about crypto as though it was only about coin and about the monetary utility of it, right? And we have seen that bubble up and blow up, uh, you know, at least eight or nine or 10 different times, and it'll likely keep going, right? But people make the mistake that they look at that as a fairly narrow phenomenon that is only important when you look at your own investment strategy or your own retirement portfolio. But, but it's not. It's a much broader phenomenon that is springing from uh, the uncertainty as these forces collide, right? So it's really about a trust revolution and an attempted, attempted governance revolution, right? And I say attempted because we're gonna have to see how it pans out. There's good and there's bad about, um, you know, the underlying technologies like blockchain and what we call 
Web3, right, which tries to take power away from big government, big corporates and the big hyperscaler platforms. But people have, you know, have have invented, uh, you know, the initial Bitcoin and other technologies, not necessarily in an attempt to enrich themselves, but in an attempt to reshift power. And so that is a discrete phenomenon. Uh, you know, we again, it's called Web3. It came from crypto. It underlies crypto. And it's an attempt to reshuffle power. Um, and that is a big phenomenon now. Uh, I don't know if it's going to dominate, but it's certainly fighting uh, the old, more centralized paradigm because of that lock, lack of trust, that loss of trust. And it's trying to recreate that. And it's mm. it's fragile, right? But it's an attempt. And that's one of the... Uh, phenomena uh, right there, right? And then we we have seen phenomena like increased M&A activity, of course, if you really want to get down the business coming out of the pandemic uh, and uh, non-digital actors now very rapidly acquiring AI and data science and digital transformation um, capabilities. And that's, of course, a phenomenon. Um, And there are many, many like that. Right. The I stands for impact. Um, I guess that's taking everything that you've been assessing and and making sense of and seeing how it's going to impact uh, you directly and, of course, the jurisdiction that you have responsibility over. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is where you either do the value chain or the industry or the, the societal ecosystem, right? You could also go straight to your portfolio if you're an investor or if you're a corporate executive, you could say, okay, looking at my portfolio of activities, right, or or uh, across my corporation, you know, products and programs and business units, right, because that's what a corporation is. It's it's a portfolio of different activities that hopefully get strung together with a strategy to get you from A to B. But it's a it's a portfolio, right? And so you want to make sure that you assess the impact of that. Uh, that new operating logic, the cognitive economy on that portfolio. And that then lets you triage, right? So some stuff that cannot be transformed, uh, that cannot make be made smarter, right? That doesn't help you in that remobilization. You got a ditch. You, you have to sell or get rid of or shut down, right? Strategy is as much about the things you do as it is about the things you don't do. And the latter, frankly, sometimes is more important. I can't tell you how many times I talk to to clients who have trouble letting go of stuff because political interests are ingrained in it, cultural affinity and DNA, you know, relationships, you know, maybe really promising talent. Nobody wants to let stuff go that they, quote unquote, grew up with. Right. And, and governments are the same. Look at teaching plans at universities uh, oftentimes. Uh, in Europe and elsewhere, hopelessly overstuffed because nobody wants to let anything go, right? So that's where we say you have to triage, you have to be really good about strategic quitting and, of course, adding new stuff in. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Developments, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. You know, when I first started to read the book, I was thinking, oh, okay, well, this is a book that's directed at uh, large-scale societal changes, even international. And I was thinking, how do we get everybody on side to do this? Does everybody have to get on side? But as we're working our way through this conversation, I'm realizing the great remobilization might have to be the way in which I look at the world and uh, choose to respond to it individually. 
and if I happen to be in a position of authority where I'm affecting an organization or uh, you know a region that I'm uh, representing as an elected uh, official, it really comes down to individuals being able to do this rather than saying, no, no, it has to apply to all. Absolutely, uh, Stuart, right? So this is what, what we say in the book. It's yes, obviously the, the policymakers who by their very nature and charter are going to look at macro level stuff, right? Um, they are, of course, interested in this. Yes, that goes without saying. But every business leader, and it doesn't matter whether you're the chief executive of a large global conglomerate or whether you run a neighborhood store, now needs to look at what, what does this mean for my supply chains? What does this mean for how my organization is structured? What does this mean for the skills that I need in people? If I don't have the right people, do I upskill my people? Do I augment with new people? Right. And even the, as like I say, the mom and pop store uh, at the corner needs to look at, you know, what do my people, what are they used to buying? And can I still get that uh, in this new era with the supply chains malfunctioning and things getting more expensive and more volatile? Right. Um, and, we, you know, we've seen this, of course, with very life critical things like uh, pharmaceuticals and medications. Uh, and that's where it really becomes very dicey. But I tell my students that this book is for them individually in their careers uh, and frankly, you and me in our lives um, as much as it is for the big organizational leaders uh, mm -hmm. because you gotta, you gotta be able to, to triage your own life too and become agile, right? Now that sounds a bit technocratic and privileged, right? We have to help the people, of course, that cannot become more agile without help, right? And that's a, that's a whole nother kettle of fish. What I like about this is, of course, is you're putting responsibility on individuals to say, stay aware of the world that you're uh, living in, go through a thoughtful process. And if you've got some kind of framework, such as the Flip It framework, it can help you to be in a position to make better decisions. Uh, but also recognize that even once you've established that, you, that this is where you see things going, that can then shift again. And so you have to, as you pointed out, remain agile. Yeah, and, and look, when, when, when we talk about the Flippet framework and, and you're hearing me talk about this as a professor, right, it might seem like this is an involved process, right? And of course, when you're triaging the portfolio of a multi-billion, if not trillion dollar company, it, it will be involved. But, but you and I can have a conversation over a cup of coffee or a glass of wine and have, you know, have some, some conclusions come out of it, some insights some new thinking uh, within 15, 20, 30 minutes. Uh, this doesn't have to be an involved process. You can literally do this on the back of an envelope uh, it, it, to some degree about your, your personal lives. So it's really, it's really about facilitating a new way of thinking and seeing what needs to change in your life now and into sort of the next uh, three to seven years. And then yes, ideally you, you do that on an ongoing basis uh, and, and, and that will then become a bit more tricky because you got to think about, you know, do I have the right house in the right location? Uh, are my kids getting the right education? Um, you know, how do I configure my career for whatever it may be the next 10, 20 years, right? And of course, the closer you are to retirement, the more critical these questions become. Um, it, it, nobody is going to change their, their lives 100% over from today to tomorrow, but there are some things that you can do. Uh, and of course, you know, I will tell you some that are, that are no, uh, no brainers, right? One is, I tell everybody, you're going to have to learn 
what data science is about. You have to get more familiar with artificial intelligence. That doesn't mean you have to take courses, get a degree, you know, and even if you do, it doesn't mean you have to do great in them and get all straight A's, but you have to understand how these things work to have a voice, how to shape them and to know how your job is impacted by them, right? Uh, and, and then make small tweaks to how you do things going forward. What you ask your bosses for, uh, what conversation you have with your partner in life, right? Or with your kids for that matter. So yeah, it doesn't have to be involved, but we all have to get used to doing it. Yes, we do. Thank you very much for your time today. And uh, it's a very interesting read and one that I, reminds me and anybody who reads it that we have to constantly be vigilant about uh, paying attention to the shifting trends and forces in life and, and then preparing to make appropriate uh, decisions for ourselves. That's exactly right, uh, Stuart. And change, change will come happening faster and faster. Uh, we we got to get on that wave and help each other do so. Yeah. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. And please visit conversationsthatmatter.ca and become a subscriber. And thank you to Autumn Brown, BD Developments, and Stem Cell Technologies for their support.